It's about two years ago and two weeks, maybe three weeks ago, um, that Kate came to me in the uh, office upstairs. And she said to me, Paul, she said, There's, um, we've been asked to look after um, a couple of twins um, because they've got nowhere to go. She said, um, their parents live in Australia. They're at boarding school. And um, because of this coming COVID thing, the, the nannies can't look after them in the holidays. Um, so could they come and stay with us? And being the kind-hearted, passionate man that I am, I said, no. <laughs> no way. I said, there's nine people that live in our house. Eight of them are women. I'm not having any more. It's not happening. And she came back to me and said, but, but it's just for three weeks. It's just for three weeks. Arm twisted. I said, okay, we'll do it for three weeks. And the next week, lockdown came. And three weeks turned into six months. <laughs> but it was wonderful. It was really, really wonderful. And they're still with us. They still come to us in holidays and half terms. They even move schools to be, to be closer to us. And they're really, really lovely girls. They've been a really joy, a real joy uh, to have around. Now, why am, I, why am I telling you that? Well, there was one time at home. They, they often watch, don't they, children? They watch what you do. And then they ask questions. And I was singing a song, um, one particular. They were not so much singing a song, but humming a tune uh, that I'd heard at Plymouth Argyle. And um, <laughs> she said to me, Paul, I know that song. I know that song. What do you mean you know that song? And she said, yeah, we had it at the football. I said, well, when did you go to football? She said, well, the school. The school took us to see Plymouth Argyle. I said, did you enjoy it? She said, yeah. I said, don't lie, Yara, don't lie. <laughs> But she said, no, really, I know that song. And I said, what song? What song? You know what song it is? And she started to sing it back. And, and I, I've been toying whether to do this this morning, whether to, it's just a tune. But I know we've got Argyle fans in here this morning. In fact, most of them that go to Argyle, I think, are in uh, this church. Now, some of them are a bit shy, and they're certainly not going to join in. Some of them, they might. Some of them are at home with COVID. Some of them have left the city knowing this was coming. Um, <laughs> but anyway, here we go. So the tune goes, do, 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 do. There he is. So this is the tune that we were singing. And now I said, I love that tune. I just love it. I really love it. And as I was preparing this message, I was thinking, isn't it funny how you can go to a football ground, you can be at any ground, really, sports ground or a concert, and we just get swept away. And we don't think about what we're doing. And it's so easy to throw our hands in the air. And it's so easy to shout and to cheer. And I'm not going to sing some of the songs that I hear at Argyle sometimes. But everyone's like as one. Everyone gets excited. Everyone cheers and sings songs about their team and, and what they've done. And just how great they are. And there's no embarrassment. There's dancing. Grown men dancing badly. But dancing and singing songs about their favorite football team. And it, and it made me think, or it does often make me think, why do we not have that freedom when it comes to celebrating God? Why can we not dance and throw our hands in the air and show praises to God without being embarrassed? How can we not do that? I'm going to look a little bit more later about that this morning. It's Palm Sunday today. I remember as a child in church before I really understood what it was all about, um, making things out of palms and, and the children would come up and down the the aisles of the church, and we'd be waving palms, and I remember thinking, oh, this is great, this is really good, we get to take part. I still didn't really understand what it was, but why do we become afraid? Why do we become embarrassed when it comes to actually celebrating what it is that our God has done for us? 
And this Palm Sunday is the lead up to Easter. You know, at Christmas, we have Advent and we get really excited because we know what's coming. But Palm Sunday is the start of Holy Week. It's the lead up to Easter. It's the lead up to Good Friday. It's the least up to, up to Easter Sunday. This should be a really exciting week. We should be shouting the name of God, the name of Jesus from the rooftops. We should be excited because of what he did. So let me read this to you from Luke chapter 19. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully praising God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said Jesus, or sorry, said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known the day that this would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes that they will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the preachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Amen. Now, there, there's four things I want to look at in that passage this morning, and I'd like to say to you that I came up with them, but I didn't. I spoke to Jeff and, and David. Uh, we were doing Philippians in the morning, and, and David, as he often does, comes and says, well, why don't you do Palm Sunday this week? Why don't we do Palm Sunday? And so we talked about this passage and the four things that come out of it, and I've read it, and you, there's no other way of doing it, I don't think. Is purpose. If you take your notes this morning, purpose, praise, passion, and prayer. Purpose, praise, passion, and prayer. So where's the passion in this passage? Well, if we look a little bit further back in Luke to 9, verse 51, it tells us that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. I've got to go to Jerusalem. This was his purpose. He was going to go to Jerusalem, and he was going there to die. You know, the disciples and other followers of Jesus thought that Jesus would emulate Judas and Simon Maccabee. They were the Jewish, like, nationalistic and military leaders 
of the time. And they liberated Jerusalem and the temple from foreign oppressors. The 200 years before the life of Jesus this was, they celebrated with olive branches. And these, these olive branches that we think about when we think about Palm Sunday, they were waved aloft in celebration of a military conquest. This was to celebrate the Maccabees toughen out the foreign oppressors from the temple. But the thing is, they didn't really understand as they waved these palms, these palm leaves, as Jesus walked into, or sorry, on a donkey, came into Jerusalem. They didn't really understand the prophecy. See, in, in Zechariah 9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. It can be translated as with salvation. Hosanna, Lord, save us. So they knew this king was coming to save them. They knew Jesus was, Jesus was coming to save them. But it goes on to say, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It goes on to say, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will rule, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to river and to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. They assumed, they just thought Jesus would have been turning up on a, on a stallion. They would, he would have been turning up with a sword in his hand, ready to kill the Romans, ready to move them to one side. They, they wanted a William Wallace. They wanted someone that was going to actually take the fight to their oppressors, to the people that lorded it over them. But as we saw in that video this morning, Jesus came to give them peace, not by getting rid of their oppressors, but in the midst of their oppressors. He was going to do it differently, and they just didn't quite understand. This was not a military conquest with force that was coming, but it was a freedom operation based on love, peace, humility, justice, and sacrifice. Jesus had a purpose. He had a purpose. He would set them free, but not quite how they anticipated it. See, God had a purpose for Jesus, and he has a purpose for your life. And you may be thinking this morning, well, my purpose is gone. I don't really know why I'm here this morning. Or you might be thinking it's not turned out the way I planned. It's not really going the way I thought it would. Do you have an expectation of what God's purpose for your life is? And it's just not quite matching up right now. I'll just encourage you that maybe God is doing something differently than you expected. Perhaps he's just doing it differently. What we think is going to happen and what God thinks are going to happen are two different things. We often arrive at the same destination, but God just does it differently. See, Jesus had a purpose in approaching Jerusalem, and he was working it out. He was making it happen. He knew he had to obey the will of the Father. And sometimes we don't want to obey the will of the Father, do we? Sometimes we take the road more traveled. Sometimes we dodge what's coming. We dodge what we know God really wants us to do. But Jesus was in obedience. And he knew he had a purpose and he had to walk it out. Romans 8, 28, that verse that we, we throw around so readily as Christians. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose but that's just it according to his purpose things don't always match up with our expectations but we need to know that God has our best interests at heart and it will work out Isaiah 55 says for my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are my your ways my ways 
declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. And my thoughts are greater than your thoughts. You see, just as Jesus' followers didn't understand how God was going to set them free and reconcile them to God, so we must also trust God that his ways are perfect. And he is for us, even when we don't understand our circumstances. So you this morning might be thinking, why am I here? Why is this going wrong? Why is this not going to plan? I've got news for you. It is going according to a plan. But it's God's plan. And we need to submit to that plan. So Jesus had a purpose. His purpose was to die. And he made this journey readily. So we come on to praise. There's praise in this passage quite clearly. We hear the crowd crying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Other gospels say, Blessed is the king of Israel, or blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Cries of Hosanna, which back then meant salvation. Lord, save us. They knew they needed saving, and they knew Jesus was the one to do it. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd even said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I said, imagine Jesus almost smiling and said, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This praise is aimed at Jesus, the Messiah. The people know that he is special. They know this. They know that he is coming to save them. They've seen the miracles that have been done. They see what Jesus can do. They know that there's something about this guy. But they just have the method or the script wrong. They just see how it's going to happen. They just don't see it. You know, for those of you that have seen the Green Mile, I've got my notes completely mixed up here. I'm really sorry about this. Hang on. Yeah, let me go back to purpose just a moment. I didn't think I'd quite finished. When it talks about purpose, this, I'm glad I'm going to share this because this, I think, is quite poignant. This purpose. For those of you that have seen the Green Mile, do you remember the Green Mile with Tom Hanks? You'll recall the prisoners' slow walk to their death accompanied by the guards. Well, Palm Sunday was the beginning of Jesus' Green Mile. No one else knew it was coming. He told the disciples it was coming, but they didn't get it. But this was the beginning of his Green Mile. You know, in, in death row, if inmates refuse to leave their cell when the time comes to be executed, they're asked, firstly, please come out. Secondly, they're told, you've got to come out. Thirdly, they're tasered and they're maced and they're accosted by several guards and they are marched to their death. It's easy to understand that resistance. It's easy to understand that fight against death, but especially when you're innocent. You see, Jesus was innocent. But here we see Jesus making arrangements for his own green mile. He's heading towards Jerusalem and even arranges his own transport. He knows his death is coming. And yet he still arranges it. He still fulfills the prophecies. Verse 30 in our passage shows us Jesus' instructions to his disciples. Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. 
See, Jesus even foretells the reaction of the owners of the cult. This is supposed to happen. This was always going to happen. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. All the signs were in the old scriptures. 400 years before this time, they were there. This was coming, but the people didn't understand. So, back to the praise. This is why we praise him. This is why he is worthy of our praise. Because he knew death was coming, and he faced it anyway. He didn't run. He didn't circumvent. He didn't go to another city. He went to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, knowing that this was what was coming. At first, his disciples, as I've said, didn't understand. It was only after Jesus was glorified that they realized that these things had been written about him and that these things had to be done to him. They just didn't get it. Nevertheless, there is much excitement, relief, and gratitude for Jesus, the Savior. See, these, these praises that we hear shouted out, they're, they're found in Psalm 118. This all adds up. The, the disciples knew from Old Testament writings, they knew that this day was coming. This was the day that they were expecting. They were expecting Jesus to do this. It says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. It's all about success and the success that they can see. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. They're under no illusion that Jesus is their Savior. And they can see these prophecies and scriptures being fulfilled. But again, they just don't see it. But, but we do. We have the benefit of hindsight. You know, I said at the beginning of this message, we find it so hard sometimes to raise a hand, to worship God, to shout his name aloud, to praise him and get excited about it. But we know what he did. We know what he achieved. And yet these people just thought they knew a glimpse of what he was going to achieve, that he was just going to get rid of the Romans and they'd be able to carry on life as normal. They would be free to do what they wanted to do. But there was so much more than that and they couldn't see it. And yet look how excited they were throwing their cloaks on the floor, throwing their cloaks on a donkey, waving palm trees in the air. They were so excited. And this was just because they thought the Romans would be leaving. How much more excited, how much more full of praise should we be knowing that we have been set free? Knowing that we are headed to eternity with God. You know, I love Jesus' response to the Pharisees. You know, they call him teacher. They don't want to acknowledge the fact that he's special. They don't want to acknowledge that this might just be the Messiah. We're not doing that. We're not going there because this is going to ruin the status quo. And Jesus' response is wonderful. <laughs> I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Jesus knows what they've missed. These Pharisees, along with all the people, even his own disciples, he knows what it is that they have missed. What he is about to do is so amazing, so incredible, so life-changing that it is worthy of all praise. Even if the stones, even the stones will cry out if we are silent. How can we stay silent when we think about what he has done? When we reflect on what God has done for us? When we think about this Palm Sunday, when he set out on this journey, how can we stay silent? We are saved. He has set us free. Our chains are gone. We are forgiven. We are righteous in him and through him. We are heirs to him. We are reconciled to God. Death has no meaning to us anymore other than the passing from this world into the presence of God. That is what God has done for us. 
He's offered to remove all our pain, all our suffering. He promises us freedom. He promises us a God who cares, a living God. And what did we do to get this? What did we do to deserve it? We called on the name of the Lord and we believed. That's all we did. And he gave us all. How do we not shout aloud? How do we not praise him continually? I ask this of myself as I ask it of you. You know, I, watched, um, I used to watch a, a series called The Last Kingdom. Um, and it was about Anglo-Saxons trying to get themselves rid of the Vikings. The Vikings were all over England trying to, trying to take over, much like the Romans in, in Jesus' time. But there was this wife, the queen, who was, who was the wife of King Alfred at the time. And they, they portray her as this really religious, pious woman. And she would walk around saying, praise him, praise him at every opportunity. And if, if you didn't really see it, you'd think it would got a bit annoying. But what you realize is she was saying, praise him when the chips were down. She would say, praise him when things weren't going well. She would also say, praise him when things were going really well. And what does that tell us? It tells us we're to praise him in all circumstances. And we don't praise him because things are great. We don't praise him because we've sung some great worship this morning. We're all feeling wonderful and the sun is shining. So let's praise him. Let's praise him. No, we praise him when we go to work and we find out we've lost our job. We praise him when we find someone in our family has gone to be with the Lord. We praise him when there's no money left in the bank because we know he says that he will provide. We praise him because of what he has done. Not because of how we feel or the circumstances we find ourselves in. We praise him because of what he has done. That is why we praise God. We praise him in all circumstances. See, this coming of Christ to Jerusalem is a forerunner of his second coming to earth. This was his first coming, his first arrival, if you like. And we are looking forward to his second coming. When, if you think you know what praise is, praise is going to be very, very different. Psalm 96 says, Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. Isaiah 55 says, You will go out in joy and led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. You know, on this Palm Sunday, it might just be palm branches that we think about, that we wave. It may have just been cloaks that they laid down before Jesus, but it points to the day that he returns in glory, and all creation will be able to do nothing but cry in praise to the coming King. This is who we worship. This is who we praise. So I ask you this morning, we've talked about purpose. We've talked about praise. Do you praise him in all circumstances? Do, you, do we really reflect on the true nature of what he has done? And I think the more we reflect on that, the more we think about that, the more we will start to praise him aloud and not worry about what people think about us. When we lift our hands, I'll often say, I praise you, Jesus. I thank you for what you have done. I thank you for saving me. I thank you for saving my wife. I thank you for saving my family. I thank you that you continue to want to save the world. I thank you that you laid down your life for me. And when we remind ourselves, and when we talk to ourselves, you find all sorts of things that you want to praise God for in all circumstances. Third P, passion. In this passage, we see passion. There are three times in the New Testament that we read what, that Jesus wept or cried. In verse 41, it says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. 
In John 11, 35, Jesus wept. That's shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept as he approached Lazarus and was going to raise him from the dead. And in Hebrews 5, it says this, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offers up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who would save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. See, these occasions when Jesus was crying, these occasions when we see tears in his eyes, were all close to his time of death. And he wept over the Jews in Jerusalem. As he saw Jerusalem, he wept over them. He wept over the Gentiles who had never even heard of him. And he wept over you, and he wept over me. When I looked into this, this really struck me, this Jesus crying, Jesus' tears, and, and what they were for, why Jesus was crying. And as I was researching this, I came across this poem, and I think it just sums it up beautifully, and I want, I want to read this to you about Jesus' tears. I asked the Lord to give me love, his love for souls in sin. Instead, he gave me weeping eyes, a broken heart within. I asked him why he gave me tears. He took me back in time to when my Savior lived on earth, when he was in his prime. I saw him go to where his friend was lying in a grave. The sisters and their friends were grieved. What love to them he gave. You see my Savior standing there, was also grieved that day. He wept, graped, heaving tears with sobs to those who could say. Behold, we see now how he loved. His tears revealed his heart. His love was evident through tears. I saw God's point in part. And then he took me to the day. The people hailed their king. While Jesus enters to their tears, the children run and sing. But when he saw Jerusalem stretched out before his eye, his soul was moved with grief for them. It moved his heart to cry. Oh, as I read those solemn words, I feel that they are sweet, for in them I behold his love, so perfect and complete. To one more place he took me now, at midnight I beheld, the Son of God bowed down with grief, in deepest sorrow held. I heard his weeping, strong and deep, but through it I discerned. He prayed for me, it melted me, his love for me I learned. With tearful joy, I thanked the Lord for answering my prayer, for giving me his love for souls, his tears, his heart, his care. He wept for what he would have to do to save us. And yet, Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Where we see sorrow, Jesus saw joy. He saw the joy that was coming. He could see the end goal. He could see where this purpose of his was leading him. He could see it. And as he rode past the praise, he knew they were praising him, but they had no idea really what they were praising him for. But he knew inside his passion would lead him to the end. His passion for you and his passion for me. And his passion to be at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Everything he did was for us. 
everything. That was his passion. That was his joy. At any time, he could have thought, I don't have to do this. I'm not going to Jerusalem. I could call on legions of angels to wipe out these Romans like they want me to. And and I wouldn't have to really worry about this. But he knew the problem would still persist. He knew what his purpose was. To free us from our sin. To reconcile us from God. Even on the cross, he could have come down. We, We talk about that all the time. He could have come down. So what motivated him to keep going? To see the job through. To get it done. It was the joy. It was the joy that he could see. Just like a runner focuses on the finish line. As they're sprinting to the end, they focus on that finish line. So Jesus was focusing on this joy, the joy of finishing. Now I'm sure as Jesus hung on the cross and as he looked out across the eons of time, those times before him, those times after him, he looked out and he saw the faces of the people who would be saved because of what he was doing. He saw you and he saw me. But he also saw something else that motivated him to stay to the end, to the faithful end. The word joy in Greek has a a definite article, which means this wasn't just a general joy, the joy that we talk about. It wasn't a general joy. It was a specific joy. It was a joy for him at that time. Jesus had his eyes fixed on the empty throne at the right hand of the Father. He was waiting to be exalted to the right hand of the Father, to be restored to that place where he belongs, where we will worship at his footstool, where his enemies will be at his footstools, at his footstool. He would commence the next part of his priestly ministry there. He knew that he had to get there because when he gets there, he would be able to continue to pray for us, continue to intercede for us on our behalf. His eyes, his heart, his mind, his whole being were fixed on that highly exalted place. That was the joy that was set before him. When sin and hell were defeated... And Jesus was resurrected. That was the seat of authority that he would ascend to in heaven to occupy. That's what Jesus saw. Not his own glorification, but his ability to continue to pray for us, to intercede with us, and to be in relationship with us. So where else do we see passion from Jesus in this passage? We've we've talked about it before. He set out for Jerusalem. He had a choice. He didn't have to do this, but he did. He set out for Jerusalem. Such was his passion for us. He organized the donkey. He organized the cult. He said, I will will do this. I'm not asking anybody else to do this. I will do this. I know what's coming. I know I'm going to have to die, but I'm doing it because I love these people. I'm doing it because I want to be with them. I don't want them to be lost. In the midst of being praised and sung over like the all-conquering hero, He weeps over us. As he travels down that road to Jerusalem and people are crying out his name. They're waving palm trees. They're laying clothes or cloaks down before him. They they are lavishing praise on him. Does Jesus stop and lap it up? He doesn't stop for a selfie. He doesn't stop for a wave. He doesn't lap it up. He starts to weep. In the midst of the praise that people are giving him, he weeps for us. They just don't know. They don't know. They don't know what's coming. And then in verse 47, I love this. Every day he was teaching at the temple. Jesus made it into Jerusalem. He was on this green mile. He was heading towards his own death for us. And when he got there, what did he do? He went to the temple and carrying on preaching and teaching. Why? 
Because he knew there were still people whose eyes were spiritually closed. There were still people that needed saving. He was not interested in himself. He was interested in you and me and the people of that time that didn't know him. That was his purpose. That was his passion, despite the praise that he was being given. And lastly, prayer. This fourth P. It says in verse 46 and on, It is written, he said to them, This is as Jesus has gone into the temple. I mean, there's the famous story. At the time Jesus gets angry, he walks into the temple and he starts to turf out all the money sellers. All the people selling things, all the people ripping each other off. He gets angry and he throws them out. And I always thought that's, you know, that's kind of, well, I get that. You know, in in church, would you do that? And then I think, hang on, we have conferences here and we have people selling their wares and and selling scriptures and, and selling books and so are we, are we doing the same thing? What is it? I know I need, to look, I need to look at this a bit, a bit harder. I thought I always you know, understood this bit. But no, Jesus walked in, stormed in, and said, It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer. But you have made it into a den of robbers. See, not just money changing, as I said, not just swindling, not just dishonesty. You know, when you think about it, you travel a long way to the temple to make your sacrifices. Do you really want to carry animals all that way? Or would it be just convenient to to buy one and to sacrifice it. It kind of makes sense. So where, where is this anger coming from? Well, Jesus quotes Jeremiah 7, verses 9 to 11. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe. We're safe now. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a, den, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Jesus is saying here, why do you think it's okay to do what you want all week, all kinds of evil, worshipping all kinds of gods, all kinds of detestable acts, and then come to God for cleansing, forgiveness, and help? Why do you think it's okay for six days of the week to do whatever you like, and then come into the temple, my father's house, and say, Lord, clean me. Lord, cleanse me because here is a lamb or here are some doves. This is why Jesus was angry, was that people could not see what they were doing. They were blinded. God was some kind of insurance and policy to them. Then Jesus also alludes to Isaiah 56, which talks of God giving joy in the house of prayer to those who love the name of the Lord and keep the Sabbath holy. You see, here he's talking of a daily faith, a daily prayer and a daily reverence of God. Not saving it for Sunday, or as they did, save it for Saturday. It's not about coming to church on a Sunday, just making it right with God. I'll just get my heart just back where it should be, and I'll carry on for the next six days. This is about a daily walk with God. Jesus is saying things need to be different. You can't be doing this. You can't just treat this place as a come here, wipe clean, go out and carry on again. It's not like that. This is an everyday thing. You know, Jesus talks about prayer on the street corners. He said, don't pray on street corners like the Pharisees, and babble like the pagans. Don't just go and pray so everyone can see it and say that I'm praying, I'm doing my bit, I am religious, God knows me, I am praying. No, don't do that. Go into your bedroom, go into your closet, close the door and pray so that God might see it. God sees what we do. So I would ask you and me this morning, where is your house of prayer? Where is your house of prayer? Where do you connect with God? Where do you daily let God know that you love him? that you're grateful to him, that you want to spend time with him. Where is that? 
Perhaps it's when you go for a swim in the sea. Perhaps it's when you take the dogs for a walk. Perhaps it's in the armchair, first thing in the morning. Perhaps it's in the toilet at work. Some people have told me that's the only time they can get any peace to pray. But where is it? Where is your house of prayer where you spend time with God? You know, Pastor David and I went to um, Epiphany House last year. There was a, a short uh, day for, for Southwest pastors of, of Elim. And we went to this place. It used to be an old convent. And when we walked in, the rooms were lovely. We, we, we prayed together. We had lunch together. We had a real good time together. But then we went upstairs into their chapel, into the nuns' chapel. And I remember walking in there and just being absolutely almost knocked off my feet by what felt like the holiness in that place. I thought, why is this? I love old buildings. I'm a bit of a nerd for old buildings. And, and I just had awesome. They're like, I wonder, and this building, it was lovely. It was absolutely beautiful inside. But you know what it was? And I realized it was, it was the decades and decades and decades of daily prayer in that place that changed the atmosphere completely. Yes, it was just a building. Yes, it was just a building, but it had been filled with prayer for years and years and years. You know, there's a little story. <laughs> Jeff's not here. <laughs> but Nikki, who used to be the administrator here, used to tell me that Jeff had an office upstairs. It's the one I'm in now. And uh, Nikki said, I just knew, I could just tell. I would walk into that office and I knew that all the times I'd heard him singing out, all the times I'd heard him praying, all the times I'd heard him praising God in that office made it what it was. And so once she walked in, she would just feel peace. She could just almost feel the presence of God because the amount of time that Jeff had been in there spending praying and worshipping God. So where is your house of prayer? Where's your heart? It's wherever you go, wherever you choose to connect with God. And I would ask us this morning to think about this house of prayer. Don't leave it to a Sunday. Don't leave it to Sunday to come and make it right with God and, and we'll sing together and we'll worship God and we'll pray together. Make it every day. Make your house of prayer every day in your heart. Right, I've gone on far too long. Four things I want us to think about that we want to take a day. There's purpose, praise, passion, and prayer. Purpose. What is your purpose? Are you confused this morning? Are you a bit stuck? Where am I going? Has God really got his hand on my life or not? The answer is yes. You just can't see where it's going yet. Trust him. Pray to him. Give that to him this morning. God, show me what you want me to do. Passion. What is your passion? Have you got a passion for Jesus? When you hear the name Jesus, just like you hear some people's name and you... <laughs> when you hear Jesus, what does it do for you? Nothing? Or does it make you want to smile? Does it make you want to praise? Does it make you want to jump up and down and think, oh, if it wasn't for Jesus, I couldn't do life? Is that what you think? So think about praise. Reflect on him. Thank him for the things that he has done. Don't think about good and bad. Think about Jesus. Does he give you a passion for people? Have you got a passion for people? Jesus wept. While people were praising him, he wept because he loved people. He loved you and me that much that he would die for us. Have you got a passion for people? If you want to be like Jesus, you need a passion for people. If you haven't got one, ask him. Ask him. Put something in my heart that makes me love other people, that makes me want to go after other people and help them be saved for you, Jesus. Prayer. Places to pray. Just want to highlight, Sunday mornings, yes, we're here. Sunday evening, we'll be here tonight, 6.30. But there's a prayer center on a Wednesday morning. This is bad timing because they're off for the holidays. But they're here every Wednesday morning. You want to meet with God? Come here at half past 10 on a Wednesday morning. There's an early morning prayer for those of you that are really spiritual. 7 o'clock here on a Wednesday morning. Again, not in the holidays, not that spiritual. But 7 o'clock in the morning. It's a great place to come and pray. Get your heart right. Pray. 
And then there's encounter every first Sunday of the month. We have time where we wait on God here and worship. Well, let's make a house of prayer in our heart. Let's take these opportunities and pray to God. Now, the last thing I want to say, I'm going to ask the band to come up because I'm going to pray for us now on the back of this. But I want to highlight the last one, which is praise. I started with praise, and I want to finish with praise. Why do we find it so hard to raise our hands and to praise God? Why do we find it embarrassing to praise God in front of others? All here, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. If you don't know him yet, then I pray that you find him this morning. I pray that, that he will touch you in worship. But why are we embarrassed? Why are we afraid to lift our hands? Not that you have to do that, but we, why are we afraid to shout out, to cry in praise to God? I just want to, and the five minutes is left, we're just going to um, respond to God in praise. But think about what he has done. If you want to, yeah, I don't feel like praising. I don't really feel like praising. I don't feel like jumping up and down and, and praising God and, and looking a fool. I don't feel like it. I just don't feel like it. But you know what? When Jesus approached Jerusalem, I don't really feel like it. I don't really feel like it. But you know what? I love him that much. I'm going to do it anyway. I love him that much. Go and get me that donkey because I'm going in. As they're praising me, you know what? I'm just weeping because I love them so much that I'm going to die for them. And it brings tears to my eyes that they don't know me and they, they just won't open their heart to me. They don't really get what's going on. But I'm going to die for them anyway. I'm sure Jesus didn't feel like it. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty this morning, but we don't always feel like it. We don't always feel like it, but we're going to praise him anyway because he is our God. He died for us. He gave everything for us. And I don't know about you, but I'm determined not to allow anything to embarrass me anymore when it comes to worshiping God. I'm just not going to allow it to happen anymore. And I don't know about you. Let's stand together. Let's stand. I don't know about you, but I do not want to hear the stones cry out. I do not want to hear the stones cry out. Because if the stones are crying out, that means that we are silent. And I don't want us to be silent. I don't want to be silent. I don't think you want to be silent. So let's not be silent this morning. Let's praise God. Let's remember what he has done for us. The purpose he had. The passion he has. The prayer that he calls us to. And the praise that he deserves. Let's praise God together.